All right, everybody, specifically watching this on the playback, since we have a tiny, tiny little crowd here, but what a what a powerhouse you guys are. Amy and Kevin, I will I will get through my information here quickly so that you can jump in and we can chat about this because anybody watching this, you may or may not want to go back and watch part one, which is where I just simply showed the compilation of a spreadsheet I was creating with with some of the notes that are going to be used here. But I think, to be honest, uh, it's going to probably be a little bit more easier to follow here. So first, just a little bit of a review of why we are interested in these drugs, what they do, where culture and the medical community has has been. Um, I do apologize if any of these are misspelled. Obviously, they're not normal language, and I'm just you know typing quickly to get this in. But I, I think if I'm right, and I definitely could be wrong, uh, I think the biggest public interest in weight loss drugs came with kind of a classification of appetite suppression, 70s, 80s, uh, starting with Fen-Fen, and then it went on to Meridia, and then here are some ones that were were you know top in that category. Many of them have been discontinued or banned by the FDA for cardiovascular risk because they are amphetamine-based, so they're going to increase heart rate, blood pressure, uh, all kinds of feelings and symptoms that go along with that, like dry mouth and anxiety and insomnia. So pretty tough way to get a little bit of appetite suppression. Nonetheless, they were rocking it. I mean, they were really popular in the day. I would say even up into the 90s, a lot of people were were even building weight loss clinics around these drugs. I, I think this is the drug classification that really created the weight loss clinic model uh, as far as medically based uh, there always are kind of a handful of of weight loss drugs that started with behavioral modification intent, SSRIs, things like that tend to dampen appetite. So you see some even that have been used for uh, addiction medicine, and there is some carryover. You, you'll see even some of the medications we talk about today that are the very current heavy hitters, their side effects are people often exhibit less compulsion. They're, they're taking this weight loss drug or a diabetic medication, and all of a sudden they start feeling like they're making better decisions and they don't have these compulsions towards some of their other addictions they may have had. So I'm not going to go through all of these because I, they're pretty niche and I just don't think a lot of people um, are even interested. The ones that we're going to cover heavily today are just massive in the industry for a reason that you will see. Uh, it's just some compelling research, big, big pushes toward the top of the food chain when it comes to these pharmaceutical companies. There are always medications uh, geared toward mechanistic action in the body, such as Orlistat, that is supposedly going to block your intestines' ability to uptake fat. So always keep toilet paper with you and maybe an extra pair of underwear if you do something like that. Uh, you know, some of these things, even over-the-counter, Kytosan, things like that, that are just fiber-type things, and they... they um, advertise the same thing. Again, there there are always going to be some pretty stark side effects to things like this because when you start blocking absorption in the intestines, you're you know possibly getting to malabsorption of nutrients and some things like that. Um, but again, I, I just I just think some of these things are going to pale in comparison, not even be on the market much longer because of these new things that we're going to be uh, discussing today. So 
then I would say, uh, really just kind of a precursor to where we are today, metformin and its ilk, which were, I would call the first gen diabetic medications that may not be pharmacologically correct, but they certainly were first on the public radar in a large way. A lot of researchers were even looking at how these help other symptoms of metabolic syndrome and, and hypertension, because when you start controlling blood sugar and insulin sensitivity, a cascade of other good benefits happen, uh, which brings me to even the point of what we're going to talk about next when it comes to the, the GLP-1 category, uh, the anti-inflammatory mechanisms of these are even being looked at. They actually started out as neuroprotective uh, you know, drug intent, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, things like that. Like that was, I think, the very first thing that they were they were looking at uh, these four. And then they noticed all of these subjects losing weight massively, and they looked into some of the other mechanisms. So as we did last week, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about these peptides. And a peptide, of course, is is a smaller chain of amino acids uh, targeted directly to mimic hormones in the body. So this is becoming a very, very boutique industry where, I mean, I think pretty soon they're going to, matter of fact, I, I, I think I heard a couple of researchers say this may be 80 to 90% of, of, of pharmacy business in the next 10 to 20 years, because these truly have less downside if you know how to dose them. And if, if, due diligence is performed correctly with the the clinical trials but let's let's skip down to this third line the um you can say this a couple different ways semaglutide or semaglut now i'm going to mess it up it's like evolution versus evolution um nihilism versus nihilism what was it so semaglutide or sem ah help me out kevin amy sema no. Semeglutide, semeglutide, semeglutide. That's it. That's it. That's one I couldn't. My my brain just goes to the other. I'm, I'm very Americanized in that. Uh, semeglutide. I like that better. Semeglutide sounds like you're cheating. But so when you look at Nova Nordisk, who started this whole chain of events, I think back in 2018 with Ozempic, initially a diabetic drug, and uh, looking at the fact that a GLP-1, um, glucagon-like peptide 1, you're mimicking that hormone that is made in the small intestine, and that has a lot of different actions. It's it's a very cascading type uh, thing. I, I think I have it on the next slide. But it, it barometrically, baroreceptors, it, it helps your, uh, your central nervous system to to assess or to think that the stomach is stretched. And so you get that, you get that sensation of fullness, but it's mimicking that so that you can then tell your brainstem and your hypothalamus, Hey, shut off the hunger cues. We're good. We're full down here. Uh, it also directly uh, enhances insulin, um, you know, use and production sensitivity uh, it gets into, uh, all areas of your brain, which is why there's a neuroprotective anti-inflammatory effect. So it, it's it, it's really incredible that the media is hoping that this is a, a true miracle. 
Uh, we're going to get into some of the downsides, which there are some, but some of these other ones, I think it's Trulicity that is a little bit lower dose, and that one may not cross the blood-brain barrier. One of them does not. Uh, one of these is oral. They're actually trying to right now create a, an oral Wagovi. Most of these are are injectable, and you have to inject them once a week. Um, maybe it's Rebelsis that's that's the uh, the one that is oral. But Wagovi from the same company, Nova Nordisk, is when when Ozempic was classified and, and passed FDA scrutiny as a diabetic drug. You know they quickly wanted to get on the move to make a a weight loss approved drug. And so that's Wagovi, also even a little bit higher dosed. Uh, a massive, massive study came out and just kind of rocked the world in that regard. But then Eli Lilly uh, came out with Manjaro, also directed at diabetes. And with this as as the trade name, or actually the, just the name of the, the uh, peptide, terzepatide, it adds a second peptide that that enhances the action of GLP-1 or or the uh, I'm gonna mess again, <laughs> Kevin uh, semaglutide. Yeah, semaglutide. Um, but it also has some some direct impacts of its own. Um, you know, also on insulin. So we'll get into that here in the next couple of slides. Uh, the interesting thing is then you can use less of the GLP-1. And it crushes in effectiveness. It actually gives you more of of a uh, of a result, which we'll talk about next. The, the interesting thing is that is why uh, Eli Lilly went from being a very you know middle of the road pharmaceutical company net to now the most profitable one in the world because of this one particular drug. That's how much this is shaking up the world here. So. All they had to do, as pharmaceutical companies love to do, is take something they know that works. So all the clinical trials have been done. They have uh, you know tons of data coming in with with even adverse side effects and so forth. And they can say, okay, if that works, what can we do to change the compound just enough to get a patent? Because if we can get a patent, then voila, we can come up with our own by adding this this polypeptide to this peptide, come up with our own. And then all of a sudden, they're they're charging uh, more than a thousand dollars a month for this. So insurance companies are paying them that much, or you're paying out of pocket that much. So keep that in mind as a little bit of of an incentive. Some of the things are going to tell you, and some of the things you're going to try to downplay. But this is where we're at with the current trends. You're going to see a lot of people still using Ozempic, Wagovi, uh, oral versions are coming out. Manjaro, I don't even think, may, maybe Amy knows this, but I don't know if it's been completely approved for the weight loss version yet. I think that's still upcoming in the next few weeks. Uh, so either their stock rise is because they did announce it and I, I missed it, or they're really uh, you know, finishing up their phase three clinical trials and it's, and it's about to. So my Eli Lilly stock is going to kill it. You're going to see me driving a Porsche next week. But let's look at some of these side effects. Um, I actually do. Do I need to do that? Is this like a, an FCC thing? I need to say I actually own shares of Eli Lilly. But um, I only do that opportunistically because I, I see in the news what they're doing. I'm. You're going to see I'm kind of anti this for a reason. But I am persuadable because I think there are some trade-offs at different doses that could really, really be game-changing. So 
going all the way back to the amphetamine based um, drugs, to some of these hormonal mimickers, the the peptides. Uh, you know, we went over this a little bit more in detail last week, but from GI distress, including nausea, abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea, stomach paralysis, vomiting, all of those are, are kind of across the board because we are directly targeting the GI system. You're you're going to see a pretty high, uh, you know, resonance with these. And in one of the studies we go over, we're going to cover two studies today. I show in one of them the actual incident rate. Uh, pancreatitis, thyroid, tumors, and cancer, headaches, fatigue, lethargy, liver damage, muscle loss, insomnia, high heart rate, high blood pressure, anxiety, dry mouth, dizziness. Some of those, again, are from the amphetamine-based ones. Suicidal ideation and suicide, birth defects. How fun, right? That's worth losing a couple pounds. Um, but let, oh, I may have actually slipped this slide in in the wrong place. I want to talk about this earlier. So, so what are these peptides that are, are raising all of the, of the interest? You know, first of all, again, they are receptor agonists. So they're mimicking glucagon and again, naturally created the small intestine. I think I actually went over all this, the, the baroreceptor effect that I mentioned helps regulate glucose, hypothalamus and hunger cues, some of the neuro and cardioprotective. So yeah, I, th I thought I might've deleted this. That's why I went over it by memory. Uh, e even again, like I said, all the way down to the brainstem where you get into food aversion and things like that, these compounds affect everything. And if there's a biochemical lesson in this biochemistry lesson, it's just how many things are impacted when you start taking any kind of a drug or something that you think is just a natural clone of, of what we have endogenously. It, there are always going to be things that happen. And that's why even through phase three clinical trials, sometimes it's just not long enough to really see some, some downstream effects. But ultimately, all those things together is where we're getting that massive, significant hunger uh, decrease that leads to direct, um, you know, eating decreases. So here, here is the study everybody got on board with. Uh, this came out. I don't know if this was one in 2018 or not. It, it may, it may have been after that. But this is just the one that really everybody started looking at with Ozempic and. Uh, they're looking at that particular GLP agonist. So this study, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, is, is it's very template-driven. You're going to see how this is almost identical to the next one I show you on trizepatide. Uh, it's just kind of a template how they want to do this by certain standards. Um, but almost 2,000 adults, 129 different sites, 16 countries on three continents, Asia, Europe, and North America, the average person, they wanted this to be, this is part of their, their grid criteria, greater than 30 on the BMI. They did not want people to be diabetic, but if they had other metabolic syndrome or cardiovascular disease states or symptoms, you know that was okay. Uh, it was going to be 68 weeks and the dose of Ozempic was 2.4 milligrams, but starting low, a quarter of a milligram increased monthly until you were at the full dose. And they allowed people in the study to remain on lower doses or reduce to lower doses if they were having some side effects. That, that's an important thing to consider when we get to the application part. The fact that these drugs actually do work uh, even at lower doses, but the effects are obviously dose dependent. And they had the placebo control you know, group with that. Uh, they also, as with this next study that I'm going to show you on the... Um, 
uh, what's the trade name? The Manjaro, uh, again, identical. They they gave everybody counseling. We want you to stay at a 500 calorie deficit. They metabolically cart tested everybody. So they knew what their, their metabolic rates were and said, okay, here's your diet. We want you to get 150 minutes of exercise a week. Keep track of all this by diary. It's self-reported. So all of that stuff is incredibly normal. And it's, like I said, a template for the next study we're going to look at, even though this was funded by Nova Nordisk because it's their drug. So they're, you know, controlling this. And then the next one is by Eli Lilly. So they're using the exact same guidelines to do the studies. So you're going to see it's almost a carbon copy. So what were the results? The average uh, of the people on the uh, GLP-1 lost 15% of their body weight and some of those people, people who weighed over 300 pounds, that means they lost 50 to 60 pounds in you know just over a year. The placebo group, which you would kind of hope is almost baseline, they did manage to lose a couple percent. Uh, interestingly, people who do this research or interpret it often, um, I don't think in jest, but they know that because this is a double-blind trial, you don't know if you're getting the drug or the placebo. You just don't. So a lot of people think you know, they're getting the placebo and they think they're getting the real drug. And so they just start because of their own biases and the placebo effect, they actually behave a little bit better. Uh, maybe even the accountability of being in a study. So they feel like they're being watched. So anyway, the people without any of the actual active drugs, you know, still had a, a little bit of a body fat loss, uh, which is good. But obviously, even visually, you can see this difference. You know, this is the... Um, Ozempic down here, just crushing great results. Especially, let me remind you, because you guys are here week after week and, and you watch us pick apart some research. Uh, this again is not an inpatient study. This is in the wild. This is more than a year. So these people are going on vacations. They're having birthdays and anniversaries. And it's self-reported that, you know, nobody's measuring or taking blood or doing things like that on a weekly basis. And they still lost that much weight. This is powerful, powerful stuff. You, you really just don't see these kind of results, but there's a, but look what happens after week 68 and they go off the medication. This is the big worry. Everybody who is looking at this drug now that it's been out for a few years on the diabetic FDA approved side looking at it for just weight loss, especially because there are so many people doing it in less than high integrity ways. You know, people who, oh, I need to lose 10 pounds before this wedding, or I want to do this, or I'm a movie star and I just need to be tiny. You know, they're not doing it for their health. They're not doing it because they have a hundred pounds to lose. People who, again, out of 2000 subjects, they get down here, they're, they're, they're doing the work because it's, it's kind of hard not to when this drug is making it very difficult to eat. You, you lose appetite substantially, but as soon as they go off, it starts coming up. So just, just a note before I forget, that doesn't mean this is awful. It doesn't mean that this drug is therefore invalid. Uh, some people in public health are likening it to the fact that if you are on any other life-saving medical intervention, if you are a type one diabetic and you have to stay on insulin, if you have MS or Parkinson's or something else, and you're taking a certain medication, 
you take that for the rest of your life and you don't question it. I have this condition. I take this drug. And so it, it is now being hypothesized that people who are clinically medically obese, we know obesity is a disease state. We know 75% of early death is caused by obesity. If this is the active level of the medication that you need to acutely lose the weight, and then you should or could benefit from a small maintenance dose, and that even reduces side effects, maybe that's a good trade. Maybe it is. So those are the kind of things that I'm sure we'll be looking at here in the future. But again, if the average person is just left to it, there are people, um, yeah, I, I, there, there were two or three sub studies within the study looking at how much you lost and so forth. You know, once again, this just shows to me how powerful the drug is. Because whether you finished your course and the study's over and you move on and you start trickling up like the last slide, or you leave the study early intentionally or unintentionally, the weight does start coming back on. Uh, I was speaking to a, an in-person client of mine this morning and we were discussing this and she's curious. You know, she is a hardworking person. Uh, she's an executive. She travels all over the country, you know, a billion dollar company. She's constantly eating out. She's a single mom with a couple small kids. And it, it's just environmentally very difficult. With me, she's lost 10 or 15 pounds and then gains a little bit and loses it. And it's just been a struggle to get where she wants to go. She uh, is not obese. She weighs, she came to me around 140 pounds. We've been as, you know, as low as the high 120s. Generally speaking, once you get to about 120, 125. So you're looking at somebody in that midlife range who has that 15 to 20 pounds that they just can't seem to lose. And I would say that's just very behavioral. You know, we all say we're trying, we go to the gym, we, we have a few good days. And then all of a sudden we're having a beer and some pizza on the weekend. Um, I'm certainly in that group. We could all, I'm sure, stand to lose a few pounds or we would like to if we could just snap our fingers and do it. So she's very interested. Is this for me? Is this something that would work? Do you have any other clients who are doing this? And I said, yeah, I actually have a handful of clients. Here are their results so far. And one of my clients has lost a really solid amount of weight. And this is a client who kind of mimics the client I was speaking to, except she had maybe 40 or so pounds she wanted to lose, was becoming pre-diabetic, could have easily been on her way to clinical obesity. And we honestly worked together for a year. And same story, lose a little bit of weight, gain it back, lose it, gain it, maybe lose as much as 10 or 15 and start seeing it creep back in. At the end of a year, we were not that far ahead. And she was very rightly frustrated. So she's using one of these medications and she's now down almost to her goal weight. And I have prepped her. The feelings that you have intrinsically of depressed hunger, perhaps, you know, other symptoms that are in a positive way, keeping it easy to maintain your weight loss pace. When that goes away, are you ready? The year that you spent working really hard, learning, creating those habits, you're going to be back in that situation without this drug. Can you handle it? Will you handle it? 
those are the things we really have to be careful of as coaches and end users. But again, there may be some ways to titrate off more slowly or, you know, have a super small maintenance dose. I'm going to talk about some of the dosing things with this next medication they got into. But that that behavioral side for me is the end game. If, if this can acutely have all of this great miraculous benefit, what next? That's a very legitimate question. So during this particular study um, on the original Ozempic, adverse events reported were almost 90%. In, in research terms, that could literally be anything. Some people stub their toe and they report that in the study. In this in this year-long study, you know, did you have any adverse side effects? Well, yeah, I, I caught COVID, darn it. That must have been the drugs effect. Um, so 90% of people reported something negative happening in that year. Serious adverse effects were down to 10%. Events leading to discontinuation were 7%. So that's not nothing. I mean, this, you know, people were saying, I don't like this. Uh, fatal events, one person died again. Who knows? I would guess something like this. It maybe was not related. But here's where it gets a little disconcerting for me. 44% of people taking it are nauseous. 31%, a third of people are having diarrhea, which can lead to other things like ulcerative colitis, constipation, nasopharyngitis, which again is a cold, who knows, headaches, who knows, dyspepsia, um, you know, heartburn, that kind of thing very probable because of the mechanisms here, abdominal pain, um, some really serious things, renal hepatic. Again, I, I, I'm not sure some of these, you know, that the general population doesn't incur these things at some of these are like 0.1%, 0.6%, but all of these are categorized at under three. So most of the side effects are going to be, again, all due to the direct effects of what's happening in your, in your GI system. So, so, Really quickly, here's what came about next. Once Nova Nordisk was having such great success with this drug, and I mean, it was quickly becoming 20, 30, 40% of all prescriptions written and, and profits made. This is when Eli Lilly said, hold my beer. We're going to create Manjaro. We're going we're gonna to take your GLP-1 and add GIP, you know, another polypeptide that enhances the GLP-1 and, you know, roll the dice and see what happens. And uh, it's even more powerful. I think we're still kind of waiting to see if there are different side effects. Some people were predicting there'd be more side effects. Some people thought because of the GIP allowing uh, this to be used at a lower dose GLP-1, that maybe it would reduce side effects. I think it's kind of mixed. I don't see anything that, that makes it worse. But again, like I said, almost exact same carbon copy study methodology, double blind randomized placebo, 2,500. Uh, they wanted the BMI under 30 or under 27, or I'm sorry, over 27 with a single comorbidity, just the same. Uh, 72 weeks instead of 68, 20 week dose escalation period again, every four weeks, 500 calorie deficit, 150 minutes of week of exercise, self-reported diary, carbon copy study. But this, instead of with Ozempic, is the terzepatide uh, at, this is what was interesting, they tested the dosing, 5, 10, and 15 milligrams, all in their own categories with the placebo. 
So at five milligrams, they showed about a 15% reduction in overall weight in that slightly more than a year time frame. 10 milligrams got you up to almost 20. 15 milligrams got you to 21. Placebo, uh, Ozempic was 2.4%, I believe. This is 3.1, so pretty similar control group. Uh, and so, you know, the the upper line here was 21 versus, um, I think it was about 15% with Ozempic. And then there was one category, I think the heavier the person was, uh, they got, or there was a certain category, a third, I believe a third of the study was over 25%. Uh, so a third of the subjects lost 25% of their weight in, in just over a year, which is again, super, super substantial coming off of a drug Ozempic that was already looked at as a miracle. So this is the one that now has all eyes on it. Uh, as I said, Eli Lilly produces it. I think it's about to get FDA approval. They are in or have just finished phase three clinical trials. But here, here's, here, here are my thoughts before I turn it over to our illustrious panel of fantastic people, Dr. Souders, Dr. Brunacini, Amy Killian, some others on our group here. Um, I would love to say that if you need this, try it, except that some of those side effects, as benign as they might seem, like constipation, diarrhea, stomach pain, you, you know, at almost 50% of people getting those, that's a pretty tough toll to pay, in my opinion. If you don't have any side effects, great. Uh, maybe it's worthwhile as both of these drugs did in their trials, just start dosing up slowly. And if you just can't tolerate a certain dose, then maybe that's okay. Uh, I would also say that perhaps just plan a smaller dose so that you don't have the literal gut punch of fullness and nausea and food aversion like maybe you can dampen appetite just enough so you really mitigate those side effects and you still get a great result. And then it's easier to transition back to life without it. I mean, that would be my conservative, subtle approach if I were taking these. Uh, I'll let you know a little secret. I had my annual physical blood work a couple of weeks ago, and I was kind of thinking in the back of my mind as we were talking about this, like I'm crossing my fingers, like I hope my blood sugar is over 100 so that I can tell my doctor I want to try one of these. Like I want to I want to be able to be pre I want to be classified as pre-diabetic so I can just try it. I just want to see what it's like. Maybe I could lose that 10 or 15 pounds like everybody else wants to lose. and It'll be just simple. After I started doing the reading and, you know, for all of this presentation to you guys, I decided like, eh, I don't want it. Like for, for, for the amount of weight I want to lose, I would rather face the hunger than the potential side effects. I would rather not have to transition off of that back to quote real life. But, you know, that's me. If I was 150 pounds overweight facing literal death due to some of those morbidities, comorbidities, then then I might. I might say, yeah, I, I need some help. I need this acute push. And then I'll figure out how to maintain it when I get to the finish line. But what do you guys think? Who who's jumping in first? How about you, Dr. Souders? You you may be busy and have to leave. So let me let me give you the floor first. So I guess you know one of the one of the things that's a concern for this is if we are talking about this being a medication that 
is effective, but would need to be something you'd maintain through your life, what are the long-term potential adverse effects? And these are completely obviously unknown at this time. There have been articles that I've reviewed that indicate, you know, this is basically a biochemical version of hyper, you know, bariatric surgery. So there have been a lot of there's, or I should say there, there is ongoing discussion about whether it, given that bariatric surgery is a known number one, uh, we know the, the, the reasons for doing it, how to do it, the risks and benefits. Um, it is covered by a lot of insurance now. Um, we know that it is, it is a, a permanent solution. It is something to which these medications could potentially be added in the future. Um, and yet it can be effective without any medications. Um, you know, the, so the question is, why would you do this in terms of manipulating your hormones uh, biochemically with a medication that has a bunch of side effects that we don't know what the long-term implications are, whereas we have decades of experience with bariatric surgery and what to expect from that and what any problems, pitfalls, side effects, and so forth may mean in that context. So, um, you know, it's uh, I, I think for the truly obese that you were probably better off starting with bariatric surgery when you consider the big picture. In other words, if you know, if you are truly obese to the point where you're at the, at the disease category, and really what I concern myself with in, in individuals who may be curious to try this is they lose the weight, but you know, can they tolerate it long term? Is it good long term? Is it important? Is it meaningful? to go from that 140 to 120 in terms of risk of that level of adiposity compared to risk of the drug, because you're not going to do bariatric surgery on people who aren't with substantial risk that are, you know, and we have standards for that. So those are, those are knowns. And so why would, why would you do this and then potentially wind up putting yourself at risk at an unknown risk and also the psychological factor of knowing that if you come off of it either because of side effects or because at some point we know in in the future we find that 10 years from now after we have a lot of research on it that it, that it's a bad thing for instance which we find some negative effects that we don't anticipate now you know, the psychological aspects of that weight regain I mean, wouldn't it be potentially psychologically better to deal with the behavioral and cognitive aspects of it and just the freaking work, you know, to learn the skills and as to how to do the work to lose that. Yeah, I will play devil's advocate just to answer your questions from that perspective, knowing that I don't have a conclusion. So right. number one, why do this instead of bariatric surgery? It's, it's a hard sell to say, well, we can take a knife and cut you open and do all this to you, or you can just take this drug. 
Uh, I think a lot of people would say, I'll try the drug first. And bariatric surgery is not permanent. Um, I've, I know a lot of people have eaten themselves back up 100 pounds with a quarter cup sized stomach. Uh, and that's one of my fears, even for this, at, to your point, Jen, long term, you lose this weight, you're doing great. Who's to say that at some point there isn't some desensitization that's happening or just behaviorally, you're like, I just really love pizza, even though I'm not that hungry. Like I'm, I'm used to eating eight pieces. I met my goal and, and you start leveling yourself back up into higher food. I mean, I, I think that's a possibility. Uh, but I will say, Jed, just in the spirit of the medical community classifying obesity as a disease state, we know that all of our millions of years of hominin evolution in scarcity has led us to the point that we see food and our brain says eat and eat it all because you don't right. know if, you know, it's just tough. I mean, the recidivism rates that we see, um, I I don't like to say you know, hey, person, just do the work, damn it. And, you know, you don't need these things because if it's between them dying 30 years prematurely of heart disease and so forth, or we can do this, I'm hopeful that with long-term maintenance strategies and just long-term understanding that it is a step forward, but I understand there's usually a price for everything. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm with you. I talked myself out of even trying it. I think people in my category, it is just kind of a boutique curiosity, like people taking Adderall because they want to be peppier and people who take whatever because, you know, we're just always going to have those people. But for the people in dire need, um, here we are. We're at the starting point. Like, we don't know. We don't know the long-term answers yet. Yeah. And we have to sort of decide, sort of define what the dire need is. I mean, I think somebody who qualifies, who is a candidate for bariatric surgery, obviously the, the dire need is there because we have criteria. And that's what I don't think we have for this is we don't have the criteria. Obviously, if you had bariatric surgery, I'm well aware of the fact that it doesn't always work or it may not be the permanent solution, but then these medications would be appropriate to add to that person. Yeah. Third, we have to also, I think, be aware of the fact that when we're looking at obesity and overweight, you know what? You don't even have to be um, obese or overweight to be metabolically unhealthy. So, what are the criteria? I mean, you know, met there there are metabolically healthy, obese, and overweight, um, and there are metabolically unhealthy, non-obese, non-overweight. And so, where is this appropriate? Um, what what does it do in terms of, let's say, we know what it does with appetite, but what does it do with insulin, right? What does it do with glucose? What, you know, it's designed for use in diabetes. So those things would be appropriate. But I mean, you know, I I just, it, it's, there's just not a good answer, right? There's just, there's, I think these things create more questions and then do answers because they're so new. We're not going to have answers for a while. Yeah. So in the short term, there there are answers for some of those things, like what does it do to insulin and so forth. Like we we know that that was part of the phase one, two, three trials. Sure, trial. especially because these were designed initially to be used in diabetics. So that right. especially with Ozempic, I mean, we do know that it has 
an effect on diabetes and and that's treatment of a medical condition. So that obviously is, there's an appropriate reason for that. And I think I'd rather see people on Ozempic than insulin because of the negative effects of, of exogenous insulin. And there are people now saying, well, maybe we can use a lesser dose of these GLP-1s with a little metformin. And, um, you know, to your point, these that were initially approved for diabetes, they had to go through secondary approval for weight loss and, and prove that criteria. But uh, real quick, Amy, I know you have studied this a lot, um, so you may even have some some answers to some of our questions. Yeah, I have a couple of interesting thoughts. I mean, there are amazing, if anyone is looking to really get into the details of the studies, if you look at the SURPASS trials, uh, those are the ones that have looked at both of these drugs, um, the Ozempic and the trisepatide category of medications in diabetics, insulin-dependent diabetics, and then also um a lot of other factors too. They're really fascinating to look at. But one of the things I think about when I look at bypass, I mean, no surgery is without risks working in surgery. That's something that I think people don't always think about the long-term effects of bypass surgery on a person's life. Um, depending on the type of bypass you have, you may need to be on vitamin supplements for the rest of your life. Like there are a lot of other impacts that this surgery has that are non-reversible. Um, you have permanently made changes to your anatomy. I and mean, we look at Lisa Marie Presley. It was finally re revealed recently that she died of complications of her bypass that happened years ago. She had like 30 feet of necrotic intestines. So these surgeries are not without lifelong implications. However, I think the biggest factor when looking at anything that forces a person to modify them, like their thoughts or their lifestyle without a lot of other help are going to reach a point where they have a diminishing return because people get diet fatigue, the newness wears off, like the shiny penny effect goes away. Like it's so exciting when you're dropping weight rapidly, but then what happens, you know, 72 months in when no one's telling you you look amazing anymore, people don't comment on your weight loss every day. Like you start to lose the, the, the kind of the need to want to continue improving. And like you said, like maybe you just really love pizza or like we talked about last week, like the people who just really genuinely want to eat again, and enjoy it, you know, so whether it's bypass or whether it's a medication induced change, if the person themselves doesn't change, I feel like none of these interventions are permanent. They just aren't. And I think that's going to be the hardest thing to, to get insurance companies to continue to pay for medication for a very long time. I mean, there's, there's no doubt in getting an insurance company to pay for blood pressure lowering medications because it's absolutely people who stay on it do not rebound, right? They don't get high blood pressure again. Whereas people who stay on these GLP-1 drugs can probably start to out-eat them just like they could out-eat their bypass. And they can, you know, the symptoms or the, the side effects might continue to progress to the point where people just stop, you know? So it's, it's going to be, I think, a real challenge looking at the future of insurance coverage with these medications for weight loss specifically, because there's going to be so much personal, you know, our own demons in our head that make people go off of them, that side effects get to them, you know, all these other things that keep them from being compliant, perhaps with what their body is trying to tell them, you know, and also the nutrient deficiencies, I think you could ultimately start to see the same thing in people that are on long-term GLP-1 medications, just like you do with bypass. If somebody's not really making sure that the diet that they are intaking is adequate, muscle wasting, and we see that in some of these studies, you know, the extreme muscle loss in people 
On the flip side, there are great um, anecdotal stories of people who take these medications and actually really maintain muscle because they do help you maintain muscle in a low calorie state because of the impact that they're having on the rest of the body. So I think it's a conundrum. I think to say that these medications are a replacement for bypass is absolutely not there. Will it ever be? I, I don't know. I think there's risk and benefits of both sides of this coin. You, you brought up something that I was going to end with, but I'll just interject it here in that the whole path forward for will this really become a thing is 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 who's paying for it you know at a thousand bucks a month or more and so yes being an insurance driven thing who what, what doctors are approving it and why and where's the ma ama going to come down but that is exactly why here's a little wrinkle in that so the Biden administration has successfully for the first time ever uh, mandated that we could negotiate drug prices. The federal government could with Medicaid, Medicare, and so forth. So he got insulin way down, you know, for the first time ever, which happens to be a Eli Lilly a drug, right? So now that they have Monjaro and they're expected to just make hundreds of billions of dollars on this, in that executive order from the Biden administration, that allows Monjaro to be negotiated. And so Eli Lilly is suing the Biden administration and this will be settled in the Supreme Court. So like, there's another piece of the puzzle that would dictate how far this even goes. Is it widely available and widely used or not? I don't think the government's going to keep paying 1500 bucks or so a month for people on Medicaid and Medicare for it unless um, – you know, I mean, it just depends on on the the way the Supreme Court comes down. So, you know, it's going to be either on, on volume because it is priced lower, or it's going to be very boutique and priced higher, and that's how they make their money. So, anyway, uh, it's odd that that's part of the equation. You know, who pays for it, it will dictate how many people get to use it. But no, all, all really, really, really good points there, Amy. I certainly appreciate that, Kevin. Real quick, just because you see patients and your wife does as well. Um, you personally, the average person comes in struggling to lose weight. They have health complications and perhaps life-threatening, life-shortening diseases. Does Kevin Brunacini say, hey, I want you on Ozempic. I want you on Monjaro, or do you not? Well, I'm not prescribing, so I, you know, I, I wouldn't have the, I wouldn't have that. Well, it, it, you can nudge. You can. Well, I, I, I'm. Yeah, right. That's that's if 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 they if it's something that they want to discuss, then sure. Then you know I'll set them up. But um, if you would have asked me this question fifteen ten years ago, I would have been so righteous and an asshole saying, "Oh, you don't need it. Um, you're just lazy. If you need medications or surgery, and I'm embarrassed that I ever had that stance." Um, but then you know I'm just biased on my perception of what it took for me to be successful in my own weight loss. And that didn't require any of those would have, could have helped. Sure. Not surgery wasn't necessary, but would have medications have helped probably would have been quicker, but reminding, reminding people that you lost 120 pounds without drugs and you've maintained it for more than 10 years. So it can be done. Yeah. I, I, you can say it for me. I don't, I won't, I won't speak of myself highly, but um, yes, I, Lost uh, more weight than my wife, and I and I've kept it off for 13, 12 years now. But you lost a um, wife equivalency. Yeah, it's crazy. But um, again, I 
with as, as pre you know as pretense you know i i was very critical of those of meds and those avenues of treatment now it's just it's just another tool and i'll echo what i said last week and it you know really i imagine speaking for you for amy and jen and for you joe and for anyone else and as it's state, dictated in the guidelines you know there's it's a multifaceted approach, just like any chronic complex disease process is. Thus, it's going to be personal. That's the umbrella statement. But with that said, if some people are applicable for or meet the criteria and understand the pros and cons, the risks and benefits, et cetera, and had that conversation with the patient, then whatever that tool is, surgery, pills, a combination, whatever, then have the have the discussion go through it because remaining overweight and having clinical symptoms is not keep maintaining that there's not going to be any healthier. So that trade-off to me, I would think is worth it. And clinically, I would think most people would agree too, but pros, cons, risk, benefit, et cetera. And that's why it's always an informed conversation and just weighing out those options. And so therefore, if someone wants medication, they meet it. Sure. Um, if it works with them, great. We'll we'll work with that variable in the in the formula. But understanding and my for anyone that would take it or be on it, as I have had clients with a medication, is it doesn't change the d- dialogue of what we're doing in the background. So the behaviors you still have to have those. You still have to understand the language. You still have to understand the skill set and be. Cognitively, cognitively, behaviorally, whether you're on the medication or not, because that's what ultimately is going to get success is be able to practice this self-sufficiently. And that's the hard part. That's what a lot of people are not understanding or willing to work for that. I'm going to get, I'm going to give you Jen the last word because you're our medical director and what you say goes, Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a comical little anecdote to this because like Kevin, who just said, you know, anybody taking this medication and maybe they need it, maybe it's saving their life, maybe it's a good gamble, a good trade. They still at some point have to have those skills. They have to be ready for long-term maintenance. I had a scare this week that's really funny where over the years, my blood pressure has been super, super low. And then over the last couple of years, it's kind of crept up a little bit. Last year, it was a little high. So our discussion, our our podcast on hypertension and so forth. I got a, I got my, my old blood pressure cuff and stethoscope and I, I took my blood pressure. It was 155 over 115. And I just thought, okay, that's not right. Like clearly I was just running around. Let me sit still for 15 minutes and then retake it. It was identical. I'm like, well, gosh, I know my kids just, two of my kids, final kids just moved out this weekend. I was a wreck all weekend going through empty nest syndrome. Maybe that's it. I'll try again tomorrow. Exact same. So I'm like, wow, I may be having a stroke. Like, you know, what if my blood pressure is this high? So I very quickly ordered an Omron Platinum blood pressure cuff monitor thing because I thought, you know, this this just may be not right. And as I was waiting for a day for that to come in, I thought, okay, if my blood pressure is really that high for some reason, I am immediately going to fast for a day or two. I am going to go on a severe hardcore diet. I am tracking sodium. I am doing, and somebody that I was telling this to said, well, why don't you just go get a blood pressure medicine? And I'm like, there is no fucking way. That's going to be my first move. Like I'm going to do everything I can first. 
And then if I can't get it under control. So anyway, that's that's my goal. And that's why I'm a health scientist. That's why I'm a you know fitness advocate. Like I'm always going to do that first. My blood pressure was actually 116 over 73 or something like that. So my stethoscope and cuff went in the garbage can. Um, but nonetheless, like that was my first response. I will absolutely do what it takes to take care of my health. That's got to be a big part of this for anybody who's serious or there is no drug that's going to do it for you. So Jen, close us out. What, what's what's the our next step? Okay, well, a couple things. Well, first, when you were talking about uh, the Supreme Court and the funding, you know, that was one of the things that I was reading about those behind my comments of uh, my concern is that they're going to, you know, they're not going to want to fund this when hyperbaric, excuse me, not hyperbaric, bariatric, hyperbarics and other treatments, excuse <laughs> me, when bariatric treatment um, is is still a thing and it's and it's approved and funded. So so it may be that approval for at least certain um, instances are going to be restricted to those who've done that. And then, you know, some of them is, some of them are reversible and some of the lap bands and things like that. Um, second of all, so to your story, Joe, um, if you've read, have you read this book? I know you have this book. Have you read this book? Uh, I, I have it in my cart. I'm, I'm still waiting to see if I want to get it or not, but. All right. Well, if you, get it and read it, you will find that Peter Atiyah's philosophy is that you need to aggressively take care of the risk factor and you need to do it yesterday. And in many cases, um, it is not enough to rely on diet and medication, excuse me, and um, exercise and sodium restriction and things. And so the more you diddle the higher and longer that the risk process is prolonged. It is far better to start an antihypertensive medication as you make lifestyle changes, therefore immediately dropping your risk down and then potentially weaning off because the risk exists. And, and for hypertension, that's a that's just a given. That's a known. We don't screw around with that. Um, and the risks are just so well documented and so pervasively um, they're, they're, they're just supported in all the literature. Right. So it's not uh, it's it's not a, a questionable or debatable benefit from these medications. So I think we can get things a little bit too wrong on the behavioral side of things. One of the things that came to mind to me that I thought was actually very interesting was the, uh, you know, in the addiction realm, um, how some of the people on semaglutide are experiencing decreases in addictive type behaviors at the same time. Now, again, so they're on this medication, but so are people on, on buprenorphine um, for, say, opioid use disorder. But if you just give them buprenorphine and you don't address everything else, they still are at a higher risk of relapse. So I look at this, since it has effects in the addiction department, why not look at it that way? If we are looking at something that's biochemically reflective of a number of different um, multifactorial, physiological, behavioral, biochemical, neurochemical responses in the body, then, you know, the, again, you, like the blood pressure, 
you start the buprenorphine, you start the lisinopril, you start whatever you start, but then if you need to, because you need to stop the process right away, right? The negative process. But then the people who are able to successfully remain abstinent um, and, and we all know that people have lapses and relapses and, and that's going to happen with, with dieting and nutrition too. This is a natural part. This is the natural history of these diseases, but the, the full component needs to be present. Um, we need to think about the, um, you know, neuroplasticity. In other words, what we're doing with people in addition to giving them their medication is we're fostering that neuroplasticity. We're moving them into a new direction. This is how Kevin has done it and been able to maintain it. He didn't just simply take a pill, but he moved in a direction where his neuroplasticity was was active. So he changed the pathways his normal pathways, his, his neural pathways in his brain that led to overeating, he was able to change them. Now those pathways are still permanent. They still exist. He's always at risk. But he's made the new paths heavier traveled, more familiar. Uh, they're the default now, not the other way around. And it takes that time. And so that is a process that, uh, and we've talked about this in pain so very much, you know, again, this this is how this ties the stuff together to the the Dr. Hanscom work that I've been part of. Um, this is part of the whole treatment process. It's a whole biological treatment. And the reason this will continue to be a question for a while until we get a lot more data in the bank in terms of human lives is your argument that, Joe, if you really had blood pressure that high, you get the drug while you work on it, and then you titrate off the drug? That's the argument for these semaglutides. It's right. these people are dying. They're dying of obesity. And so get them on something, get, get the weight reversed. Then let's figure out what we can do with all the other behavioral aspects. So again, yeah. like no, no clear answers, but it is a powerful tool that is now at our disposal. And that's my worry about people who are just going to get the drug and they're not going to do anything else. Yeah. You know, it needs to be hand in hand. You can taper off of these things as you can with a blood pressure pill or potentially insulin or things like that. If you're able to get your health under control with these other um, modalities, but, but they need to be in place and they need to be solid. And we need to always be aware of lapses and relapses. And that's what we're preparing people for. Um, when we prepare them to go out and live their lives. I'm sure Kevin's had them. I think anybody who's lost any weight or struggled with that has. Um, but the, but there's a difference when in, in an addiction, lapses happen, right? But we don't want them to become relapses. So lapses are not, are normal, but we learn the tools to deal with them so that they don't become full-blown relapses. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Anybody who has questions, all you guys who are here listening patiently, appreciate that. If you have questions, feel free to message me directly through social media. Um, this may be kind of the closeout of this topic for a while. I can't think of anything else to say except, you know, just keep watching the news. It's going to be in the news. Um, again, lots of people out there have opinions, but stick to people who have some some good experience and, and medical background to address those. And as Kevin just put in the chat box, all the more reason to work with people closely 
who can who can coach and monitor. So thank you guys. Thank you, Jen, Amy, Kevin. You guys are all awesome. I'll see you guys next time.